I think that what we need to do, I know what we need to do, is let's pray. All right? Heavenly Father, we come in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. And Lord, we need the gift of your spirit to understand your word. So we pray right now that you will anoint us with your Holy Spirit. Send your spirit to be our teacher. And Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that we will understand the wonderful grace that is in the message of the investigative judgment. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. As I told you yesterday, I've only taught on this once before, so in some ways it's a bit intimidating to me. And for our radio audience, I should introduce myself. I'm Shelley Quinn, and it is... I'm here today to speak on this because I really felt God asked me to do this. So what I want to do is just review very quickly what we went over yesterday. We started when we identified the pattern of investigative judgment that God began in Genesis. And it goes throughout the Bible. So we see the idea of an investigative judgment is nothing unusual to God. In Revelation 14, 17, we see that the first angel comes. And what does that angel say? The hour of his judgment has arrived. And we know that this investigative judgment, we looked at it yesterday, has to begin before Christ's second advent, before he comes again. Because in Revelation 22 and verse 11, the angel stands up that Christ has sent and he says... He who is filthy still, or unjust still, let him be unjust. He who's filthy still, let him be filthy. He who's righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. So then Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. What the angel announced was the end of probation. And now Christ says, as soon as this is over, here I come ready or not. We looked at the five final phases of God's judgment. <clears throat> Excuse me. It begins with the pre-advent, meaning it happens before Christ returns, the investigative judgment that we looked at that Daniel 7 prophesies. When the Ancient of Days comes, he's seated at the court, the books are opened in front of thousands upon thousands of heavenly beings, and then one like the Son of Man comes before him. So we see the Father is the judge. And yesterday we proved from Scripture that this heavenly sanctuary, or the true sanctuary, is in heaven. The second phase of of judgment is at Christ's return when he executes the judgment that was made during that time of investigation and he separates the goat from the the sheep he separates the wheat from the tares but the decision the fate of all has been sealed during the time of the investigative judgment then the next judgment takes place after the first resurrection, when the righteous are dead or raised, those who are alive and remain, they all go up into the air together to meet Jesus, and they go to heaven, and for a thousand years, there is a deliberative judgment where the books are open for us. And it's not that we, when, when the Bible says we judge fallen angels or that we judge the world, it's not that we're trying to say, oh, they were right or wrong. What we're looking at during this time period is we are vindicating God's judgment. God is, it's deliberative. The There's discussion going on so that we understand why some didn't make it and why others did that we weren't expecting. After this deliberative judgment comes, the new Jerusalem comes down. Then there is the second resurrection of the wicked. And we see that what happens is they still are rebellious. They fight against the city. And there is the great white throne judgment, which is only for the wicked dead. Then we have the final phase of judgment, 
is when fire comes down from heaven, the executive judgment, the execution of the judgment, and everything on earth that is a sinner, a sinner, is destroyed. And God creates a new heavens and a new earth. Daniel 7, 9-14 prophesies the investigative judgment. And we know that Daniel also talks about this little horn power that is going to tramp on the daily services of Christ's heavenly daily priestly ministry. From history, we know this little horn power. There was a time of persecution that began in 538 when it became not just a religious power, but a political power. And this religious, religio-political power that began in 538 reigned with persecution during the Dark Ages till 1798. But we know from Scripture that the investigating judgment is going to take place after this. This is all a review. Now, the most important thing that we learned yesterday is the grace of the investigative judgment. Because the Bible says God will rule in favor of his saints. So what we're going to do today, having that foundation, we concluded yesterday speaking of Daniel 8.14. And I want you to open your Bibles, please. In Daniel 8.14, we see this little horn power that is trampling down the daily services, taking the place of Jesus, if, if you will. And Daniel asks this question, How long, O oh Lord, is this going to go on? In Daniel 8.14, the answer comes. For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Yesterday, we also looked at this being the anti-typical Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement in the earthly sanctuary services with the high priest happened once a year. And it was a solemn day that ended in joy for the penitent because all of the record of their sins were expunged and the, the temple was cleansed. But now we are down to trying to figure out when does this 2300 days begin? This is one of the most important time prophecies in the Bible. And we want to know when it begins so that we can know we know that, how long does it last, this, this, uh, after the 2300 days, excuse me. When we know if that ends, when it ends, then we know when the investigative judgment begins, which lasts how long? Right up till the end of probation, probation when God, Jesus stands up and says, behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me. So if we can identify in Scripture when the 2300 days begin then and end, then we can identify the beginning of the time of the cleansing of the sanctuary. So what we're going to do is a quick review of Bible prophecy. We're going to begin in Daniel 9. You know, prophecy is nothing more than history written in advance. And it tells us what's going to happen before it happens. Now, what we will apply today is the prophetic principle of one day of prophetic time equaling a literal year. And I want you to know, Adventists aren't the only one who use this day for a year principle. We base that on Numbers 14.34 and Ezekiel 4.6. But the, the greatest Jewish scholar who ever lived, Rashi, he lived from A.D. 1040 to 1105, he translated... Daniel 8:14 those 2300 days as 2300 years. And so does have, are you all familiar with Matthew Henry, the great Protestant scholar and he has a commentary that's found on most pastors' desks. You will find the Matthew Henry Bible commentary. So Daniel 8:14 he said to me for 2300 days 
Then the sanctuary will be cleansed. How many years is this? 2,300 years. And this activity begins in the time of the ram, which is Medo-Persia. It goes down through Greece, then Rome, the little horn power, and right up to the point where the investigative judgment begins, this cleansing of the temple. It's obvious, if it's going to cover all this time period, it's obvious that it can't be literal days, because 2,300 days would be less than seven years. But it is a day-for-a-year principle. Now let's look at Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. Daniel 9 and verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined. And in the Greek, that word determined is tachuk, cut off. Cut off from what? See, in Daniel and in prophecy, we see this, this idea of recapitulation, where it is repeat and enlarge. So we had the vision in Daniel 7 of the Ancient of Days being seated and the books being opened. Then Daniel 8 tells us how long the war goes on. And now we're about to come to the time of when will this investigative judgment begin. So Daniel 9 is repeating and enlarging. And he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people. They are cut off from this 2300 period of uh, days. It's they're determined for your people, talking to the Jews, for your holy city, Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. This 70 weeks, how many years would that be? How many days are in a week? There's, there's seven days in a week times 70 weeks. That's 490 years. This is a probationary period for the Jews. During which time, what do you think is happening? If God is watching for them to finish transgression, to do all of these things, what's happening during these 490 years? God's investigating their Records. He's investigating their deeds, if you will. So he's trying to see if they will line up, if their works will be proof of their profession. But it's cut off from this 2300-day period. This is an allotted time, a period of grace for the Jews. And he's wanting the Jewish nation to line up with his purpose for calling them as a people. Now look at... Verse 25, Daniel 9, 25. This is an amazing prophecy because it foretells the, t the coming and the time of the Messiah. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Let me explain something here. This seven-week period is that first one that he was talking about. And then when he says, and 62, it's essentially he's saying there will be seven weeks plus 62 weeks. So 69 weeks, which would be 483 literal years. And he says, the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. So here he's foretelling the very time when Christ will appear and be anointed in his ministry. There were several decrees that were issued to rebuild two of them for parts of Jerusalem, but only one of them qualifies to fulfill what's here in Daniel 9.25. Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild the temple. Darius basically reinstated the same uh, decree that Cyrus had issued. But Artaxerxes I is the one who decreed to both rebuild all of Jerusalem and restore it, providing self-governance for Jerusalem and the political autonomy, religious autonomy and political autonomy.
So only the decree that is given by Artaxerxes can meet the qualifications. So now we've got a beginning date. This decree has been determined. It's recorded. And if you want to put a little note there, if you, if you mark in your Bibles, right there in Daniel chapter 9, write down Ezra 7, 12 through 26. Because that is the decree and it was dated at 457 B.C. So the 2300 days begins in 457 B.C. Because the 70 weeks begin. And it's cut, that 70 weeks is just lopped off from the front. It's cut off for the Jews. And guess what? As prophesied for the very first seven week prophetic period when he said seven weeks the rebuilding of Jerusalem happened in exactly seven prophetic weeks or 49 literal years it was completed in 408 BC and then Daniel 9 also prophesied that the Messiah would come after the 69th week which is 483 years from the issuance of the decree and as prophesied, you take 457, you add 483 years, you come to A.D. 27. And what happened in A.D. 27? Jesus was baptized. He was baptized and anointed with the Holy Spirit. Now Daniel 9.26 says this, After the 62 weeks, now, this is, what's going to be after the 62nd week? I'm going to trick you here. Remember, you've got to have the seven weeks first plus the 62 weeks. So after the 62 weeks, those two total 69, what comes after those 62 weeks? The 70th week. See, these, this prophecy, it's all time sequential. It's it's talking about different portions, but it's all in a straight line. It is sequential weeks. So when he says after the 62 weeks, he's referring to the 70th week. Because we've got to remember that previous seven weeks rebuilding Jerusalem. He says this then, Messiah shall be cut off. This is a different verb than when he said the 70 weeks would be cut off. This, when it says 70 weeks will be cut off, it means literally it's just like, okay, we're apportioning this. But here when he says, Messiah shall be cut off, the Hebrew verb is krit, K-R-T. And it is directly linked to the Levitical sacrificial system. So he says, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolutions are determined. Messiah shall be cut off in the middle of the week. We'll see here in just a minute. Let me see. I've got that out of order, but he goes on in a minute to tell us that. Just as the prophecy foretells, how was Jesus cut off? He was crucified three and a half years into his ministry. In A.D. 31, he was cut off at the cruel cross of Calvary. And sacrifice and offering came to an end. His perfect sacrifice, once for all, ended all of the Mosaic law of rituals and ceremonies. Christ was the fulfillment of all of these. They were the types, the shadows. He is the anti-type. He is the body that cast the shadow. So what an incredible time prophecy Daniel 9, 24 through 26 is. But Messiah, although he was cut off in the middle of the, that ministry, earthly ministry, his heavenly ministry just began. At his ascension, Christ went and inaugurated the new covenant with his blood. 
He began his priestly ministry by anointing a most holy place, the heavenly sanctuary. Let me just read to you real quickly. Hebrews 9, 18 through 22 says, Therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop and sprinkled both the book, the book of the law, the book of the covenant itself. He sprinkled the book and all of the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood there is no remission. So Jesus went to the heavenly sanctuary and inaugurated that new covenant now look at verse 27, Daniel 9, 27. Again, this is a repeat and enlarge. He says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. We're still talking about the 70th week in which Jesus was cut off in the middle. How did Jesus confirm? And he goes on to explain that. He says, In the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. That's the scripture I was looking for. How did Jesus after he was cut off in the middle of this week, how did he confirm the covenant for the remainder of that 70th week? For those three and a half years, what happened? Well, at his direction, his disciples went only to the Jews for those first three and a half years after his, his ministry. It, they fulfilled... The remaining three and a half years. Listen to what Hebrews 2.3 says. They confirmed the covenant. Hebrews 2.3 said, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? It wasn't until Stephen was stoned three and a half years later when Christ called Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So everything in this time prophecy, everything about these 70 weeks, this special time of probation for the Jewish nation to finish their transgressions, everything was fulfilled. And guess what happened at the end of the 70 weeks? An investigative judgment. God saw the Jews, weighed them in his balance and found that they were wanting. So from Paul's day forward, to be part of God's chosen people means that it doesn't mean anymore that you have to be a literal descendant of Abraham. Because God now changed who make up that group. So we see that the 70 weeks, those 409 year, uh, 90 years that were cut off from the beginning of the 2300 days, they ended in A.D. 34. So if we can determine how many years we have left, we can figure out the date for the end of the 2300-day time prophecy. And when we know the end of the date of the 2300-day time prophecy... We know when investigative judgment begins. So let's look at it. If the end of Israel's probation took us to A.D. 34, if you take 490 from 1800, and I mean from uh, 2300 minus 490, if you can't do the math real quick, I'll just tell you, it's 1810 years left. So 1,810 years remain from the time that Stephen was stoned, that the Jews were no longer considered God's chosen people, and that the Gentiles, it was only those who were looking to Christ. So A.D. 34, you add 1,810 years, where are we? 1,810 plus... Eight, from, to eight, AD 34, that brings us to what? Say it out loud. 
1844. I'm sorry I don't have some graphics for you. But you know what? When we sit down and talk about this with people, you need to make little notes in your Bible. Because you're not always going to have a graph or a chart. And this is an incredibly important teaching. It's an incredibly important teaching. So it brings us right to the time of 1844. All of this is found in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Israel's time of, prophetic, of probation was determined as those 70 prophetic weeks, 490 years. The prophecy is explained as a sequence of uninterrupted weeks. That is so important. You know what I was taught in my early Christian experience? That the 70th week was lopped off and taken down here to the end of time somehow. That's where you get all the left behind theories. If you want to be able to minister to people who believe that, you need to learn how to explain this. And you don't have to have a chart. You can just make little notes. It's really effective just to sit out and have a piece of paper and just show them. I mean, do a little addition and subtraction so they can understand it. So that time prophecy was divided into the first seven weeks, as 62 weeks, and the final week of 490 years. So based on knowing that these 70 weeks were began in 457, they were cut off from the 2300 years. It, it makes sense to then know that the 2300 years began in 457. It takes us right up to 1844. That's the beginning of the investigative judgment. The cleansing of the sanctuary began in 1844. It is another probationary period for God's people. This time for his new covenant people. And once again, God is challenging us. Just as he said to them, I'm giving you these 70 weeks, these 490 years to lead a holy life. God is once more challenging us. Saying during this investigative judgment, it's the same thing. God's challenging his people to lead a holy life and to do works that prove their profession of faith. And when does our probation end? It ends when Jesus stands up, when the angel says, let him who is filthy be filthy still. Let him who's unjust be unjust still. Let him who's righteous be righteous still. And he who's holy be holy still. In other words, time's up. Ollie ollie in free. If only. If only. So, Jesus then stands up and says, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is in. Is to, I'm going to give my reward to everyone according to their work. That's when the probationary period closes on earth. But I want to read you something. Luke 12, 19 and 20 says something a little different. This is a foolish person. Who says, I'll say to myself, oh, I have plenty of good things laid up for many years. I can take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? See, probation may continue till the end of time. For God's chosen people, but individuals, their probation is closed when they breathe that last breath. As long as you got a breath in you, you got a chance. And I know someone whose father recently accepted Christ maybe five minutes before he died. And you think, what a joy! That is for the family to have that blessed hope. But what a wasted life. How sad that he had to live in the sin and degradation that he lived in right up to the end time. And if we understand the joy of investigative judgment, 
which we're getting to, we will understand, be able to go out and explain to people, not with that lash of fear and saying, you know, a fear-driven thing that this is the time of probationary judgment. You've got to be holy. No, that doesn't win anybody over. What wins people over is when you go out and say, this is the time of the end. It has been prophesied. Time is com coming to an end. Did you know that time did not exist before the world began? The Bible says that in several places. And finally, physicists, about 15 years ago, physicists finally determined that time didn't exist before our world was created. So time's running out. It's a time of God's grace. It's a time of mercy during this investigative judgment. God is reviewing individual cases. And what he is looking for is to see whether or not they have accepted his attempts to save them. Have they accepted justification by grace have they accepted sanctification by grace a new heart from the Lord the books are open and it's not just judging the saints and do you remember what we talked about yesterday I think we talked about it in in the times of the Hebrews the judge was also the defense attorney did you know that? So we see God seated as judge, the ancient of days. Then we have the Son of Man coming, the Son of Man who stands as our advocate, our intercessor. He's coming before God. God is anxious to defend you. But he's looking at your works to see if your profession of faith lines up, if your works line up with your profession of faith. See, the good news, the joy of the investigative judgment is God's on your side. This, this judgment is predominantly vindicatory. It's a big word, isn't it? Vindicatory. It vindicates God's saints. Satan, the accuser, has been accusing all along. They don't deserve salvation. They don't deserve it. They've broken your law. And God is saying, Ah, they've accepted my son. For I so loved the world that I gave my only begotten son. And I demonstrated my love for you in this, that while you were yet sinners, I sent him to die for you. How much more do you think I'll do for you now? Oh, we've got to give up this idea of Oh, the investigative judgment. It is all about vindicating God's saints and vindicating God's reputation. God is very anxious to vindicate his reputation, to vindicate his character. You know, Satan is the one who began all of the lies about God, that he was... Um, an angry, judgmental God who expected too much out of people. And all of these lies have, boy, I certainly inherited them. Oh, I feared God the Father. How I feared the Father. I loved Jesus growing up. But there was, all you had to mention was God the Father. And it struck a note of fear in my heart. Because I thought the Ancient of Days was sitting on his holy throne, watching me, just ready to zap me the second he saw me do something wrong. I was taught that if I wasn't perfect, God wouldn't love me. And you know what that does? That will send you hightailing. I tried so hard to be a good girl. Ooh. I tried to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. But rules without relationship result in rebellion. And I finally got to the point that I said, I can't do it, God. You expect too much out of me. Adios. And I turned my back on God for two years. It was like the fool who said, let me eat, drink, and be merry. 
I mean, why not? I'd been such a good girl all through high school and through college and everything, and it was like, I can't please you, Lord. What a lie. And I bought into this deceitful lie. But what God is doing is he is vindicating his judgment before all the angels and the heavenly intelligences. He's vindicating his his character. This is an investigative judgment about grace. All about grace. Now, yes, our works... Jesus says, I'm going to give to everyone a, a reward according to their works. So everybody always says, right there, see, we're judged by works. Let me tell you something. Yes, we are. Because works prove what you do. Works are your deeds. And, and you can say Jesus is your Savior. You can go out and... Uh, do ministry even. And the day may come when the Lord says, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. See, salvation is only by grace, not grace plus works. Please hear me. It is only by grace. But if you understand the gifts of God's grace, you'll understand the effects of God's grace. The, the three greatest gifts of grace are Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. And when the Spirit is working in you, yes, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but in the very next verse, Hebrews 2.13, 2, he says, Not in your own strength, for it is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Our job is simply to surrender, to pick up our cross every day and die to self. And we can't even do that by ourselves. We've got to have the Holy Spirit. But the good news is that if we will receive Christ as our Savior, our Redeemer, our Deliverer, if we will accept his substitutionary death at the cross for us, if we will accept his ministry as our high priest in the most holy place, we're saved. Do you have assurance of salvation today? Let me ask you that. I hope you do. 1 John 5, 10 through 13 says... That anyone who does not accept the testimony of God is regarding him as a liar. And he says, then, then he says, this is the testimony. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. If you are abiding in Christ, you have assurance of salvation. It is not once saved, always saved. And I've got to, to go quickly because I've got to get a balance in here. We usually, at least when I talk with people, usually when they think of the investigative judgment, they are only concentrating on the penal part, the punishment. Right now we are concentrating on the grace, which far outweighs that. But I have to get that penal part in here, because otherwise I'm not teaching a whole truth. But the joy of investigative judgment is that we have a benevolent judge, the righteous father, who serves as our defense attorney. This is a message of exceeding promise of God's mercy, his grace, and his, his hope. It's deliverance of sin. Our only hope to stand in the investigative judgment is to stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There is nothing you can do to make yourself righteous. I don't care if you pray four hours a day, if you study the Bible six hours a day, you cannot make yourself righteous by your works. It is only the robe of righteousness that Jesus Christ gives us that will make us righteous. It's the only solid ground that we have to stand on. And the good news is salvation is by grace.
But now let's take a moment to talk about the penal aspect. Because if we were looking at the Day of Atonement, what happened for God's people during the Day of Atonement? How did it end? Do you think it ended on a joyous note? When the sanctuary was cleansed? When their sins were expunged? Oh, it was a day of great celebration. If you were one of the penitents. But how did it end for those who did not humble themselves before the Lord, who remained rebellious, it ended in condemnation and death. And likewise, this is what happens in heaven. Not all whose names are written in the book of life will remain faithful. So you get your name written in the book of life when you accept justification by grace. What Christ did for you on the cross. But we also have to accept sanctification by grace. While God does a work in us to sanctify us, to separate us from sin. And there's ample evidence in scripture that salvation by grace can be forfeited. People who were once saved can choose to walk away. And some names, those of the unfaithful, will be blotted out of the book of the life. During the investigative judgment, Exodus 32 is the first reference we have to this type of activity in heaven. Exodus 32, 32. Moses has just done one of the most amazing things. Moses was a type of Christ. And Moses has just told the Lord, oh, forgive these people, please. And if not, I pray thee, blot my name out of your book. Not theirs, blot mine. You know what, I love you guys, but I don't know if I love you enough yet to ask God to blot my name out instead of your names out. That's love. Moses was saying, I will suffer eternal death for the sake of these people. Do you see how he's a type of Christ in all ways? He was a deliverer. And Jesus came and he was willing to suffer the second death for us. And you know, God says to Moses in verse 32, well, let's read, let's read, uh, it's actually Moses speaking. He says, yet now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. What was the Lord's response? The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. In the Old Testament, this is established in the New Testament. We have Jesus himself. Turn to Revelation 3 and verse 5. Revelation 3 and verse 5. Because there's not just joy in the investigative judgment. There is a sober, sorrowful note in the investigative judgment. Revelation 3 and verse 5. He... Who overcomes, this is Jesus speaking. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. What does that infer? That if you don't overcome, what's going to happen? You will get your name blotted out. But Jesus says, don't worry, if you overcome, you'll be clothed in white garments. I'll not blot your name out from the book of life. But I will confess him before his name, before my father and before his angels. See, the sober news of the investigative judgment is this. The fate of all will be sealed during the investigative judgment. The book of life will be opened. The book of remembrance, all the books will be opened and say, uh, and, and remember, let me pause and don't let me forget where I'm coming back. During the day of atonement, who was judged? Only God's people. 
only God's people. Non-Israelites were not judged during the Day of Atonement. The day of investigative judgment that began in 1843 when the hour of his judgment began. It is only God's people who are being investigated. Only those whose names are written in the book of life. But just because you have accepted Christ as your Savior does not mean that you are going to have eternal life. You've got to accept him as Lord. And you know, don't be fearful about this because it is all by grace, salvation. God wants to do this work in us. All we've got to do is say, okay, Lord, here I am. What was the scripture that, do you remember from last night, anybody, what scripture was it that uh, Pastor Dwight Nelson quoted and said that Ellen White said to plead before the Lord. Y'all remember that from last night? Any A students in here? What was it? John 6, 37. Let's read that. John 6, 37. John 6, 37. Because see, as soon as we start talking about punishment in the penal phase, guess what? Everybody's face changes out here. And I can read somebody's mind. Not really, but I read my own mind. And that is that when you're talking about grace, I'll smile. Then you start talking about punishment and it's like, oh, am I in grace or not? You know, isn't it amazing how funny we are? John 6.37. Let me find it here. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Hallelujah. You can plead that promise. But you know what? You can choose to walk away from God. And there is condemnation and eternal death for those who choose a life of rebellion and sin. You know what? I was reading um, Matthew 26 about the ten virgins. In Scripture, how is the church referred to? As a virgin. We've got ten virgins in this story. Five are foolish, five are wise. Okay. Does this mean they're all in the church? That does mean they're all in the church. The five wise have this flask of extra oil. What does oil symbolize? Holy Spirit. Well, how did these other five foolish get into the church? They all experienced a taste of God's grace. The five, all ten of them experienced justification by faith. By grace through faith. But they, the five foolish refused the work of the Holy Spirit that they might have sanctification. For this is the will of God, Paul told the Thessalonians, your sanctification. Sanctification by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Sanctification meaning that you're separated from sin. And see, when we talk about the wedding guest, remember when Jesus was telling the parable about the wedding guest? And, and he got in and the king comes and he's looking around and he sees one who is not clothed, right? And the king is saying, hmm, I know that I provide, I, I provide clothing. I provide all of my guests with wedding clothing, why doesn't this one have it on? And he goes to him and he says, listen to what he says. He says, friend, how did you get in here dressed like that? He calls him friend. And you know what? If the man had said, Lord, our king, I didn't know it was available. The good king would have come and said, here. But no, the man knew. I know he knew because he was speechless. 
He knew he was doing wrong. And there's going to be people who think that they can get to heaven, but they're not going to make it. Peter writes this. He says, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One way or the other, all the fate is going to be sealed there in the investigative judgment. And then the angel stands up and says, He who's unjust, let him be unjust still. If he didn't take this time of probation, if he was like the old ancient Israelites through their 490 years of probation, they didn't put an end to transgression, they wouldn't accept what God was plan, God's plan was for their life. Okay, time's up. Ready or not, here I come. But those who are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, those who are looking to Jesus, know that he will in no wise cast you out. You've got to let go of his hand. God began the 2300-day prophecy by cutting off 70 weeks for his old covenant people, 490 probationary years. At the conclusion of this time prophecy in 1844, he introduced a probationary period for his new covenant people. We seem to think it's been a long time, but so far it's only been 170 years. Not quite. See, Second Peter says this, chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is a, as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We can't become complacent. Because we're not promised a certain time. The last events will be rapid. But we can have joy in our heart knowing that at that time Michael will stand up the great prince who watches over the sons of his people. And he is going to wake people from the dust of the earth. The investigative judgment is, is complete. He's going to raise up his children in that first resurrection and take them to heaven. By grace. It is all by grace. There is joy in the investigative judgment. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.